don't know what's happening here. This is exciting. This this normally doesn't happen. I can't tell if this is like a long joke that Tom's building up to. No, I just wanted to copy over that first file that we did so I can work on it. Gotcha. Doing all the drop boxes. All the box dropping. <laughs> drop drop it like a box. Yeah. <laughs> There's a box model, right? That's yeah, a thing. Yeah. Do we still use that? We sure do. But there's a flex box as well. Yeah, the box. that's the box model that's worked out. Oh, and then there's a, a CSS grid. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's so many things. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Eric Bailey, designer here in our Boston office and fan of all things accessibility. How's it going, Eric? It's going well. Thanks for having me on the show. Ah, thanks for joining us. So I think you are one of the first designers that I'm actually going to be chatting with on this here podcast, and I'm super excited to dig into some of the things at the intersection of the world of developers and design, particularly to dig in, at least I want to start the conversation, to talk a little bit about accessibility. You are a fan, a supporter, a proponent of keeping accessibility as a first-class concern on the web. And you actually just gave a wonderful lightning talk here at ThoughtBot yesterday over lunch, which was actually not even a lightning talk. It was like a full-on talk. It's a whole thing. Yeah, so, real, real deal. So yeah, accessibility. What does, that, what does that mean to you in the world of web development? What should we be talking about? How does this all work? Yeah, accessibility is many things to many different people. I personally like the philosophy of inclusive design, which is basically making things as accommodating to the widest pool of users from the start without any special accommodation or consideration. Uh, so basically, the more you can do to take the burden off the end user, the mm -hmm. better. So in the accessibility world, that means like using semantic HTML, uh, starting with a progressive enhancement mindset, you know, using good color contrast, all these kinds of good decisions that yeah. pay off dividends. There's this whole kind of dichotomy, I guess, for how you do accessibility work. And what I try to do is get it pushed more towards the beginning of the process. It's called mm -hmm. uh, shifting left in the uh, industry where Everything yeah. you own in the box to the left. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So you got it. But basically <laughs> doing remediation, so fixing it after it's broken and somebody's called you out on it is this Sisyphean task. And mm -hmm. so you wanna you wanna get ahead of that kind of kind of thing. And avoiding being in a reactive mode with things like accessibility, that definitely makes sense. One of the things that often comes to mind for me is there's occasionally there's a judgmental vibe that comes along with accessibility, which I sort of agree with because I think accessibility should be a primary concern, but I also think shame and judgment are, are rarely the best mechanisms. But I think a way to sometimes shift this conversation is to say mostly HTML is accessible by default, much like HTML is mostly responsive by default, and yet we often break that. And so if we can avoid those patterns where we're breaking things, then we're at least starting from a better foundation that, like you said, using semantic HTML and having a logical document structure and things like that, there are definitely things that we can do from the beginning to not even break it. And then there are layers that we would put on top of that, like ARIA attributes and things like that, which I'll admit that I'm not as familiar with, but at least starting with like, use links when you want to help someone navigate, use buttons when you want to allow them to change the page in some way. Yeah, it's fun that you say that because I try to take a very much like you get more flies with honey than you do vinegar approach yep. to this. So trying to empower people. So like A, making them aware of these concerns, you know, a lot of traditional CS education and a lot of kind of pick it up as I go along blogs and stuff don't 
explicitly mention accessibility. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I empathize with developer put in that position where all of a sudden there's this whole world that they haven't encountered that is suddenly like they're getting raked over the coals for. Yeah, and it's one of many, many worlds. Like security is another facet that we really all should have a deep understanding of, but it's often a, a side conversation yeah. or not primary. And like, we can't sleep on security and we really should not sleep on accessibility either. Yeah, little Bobby um, tables. Yeah, little Bobby tables. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I mean, like one of the tacks I try to do is like thread it into as much of what I do as I can. You know, in my mind, it's a holistic concern. So like any way you slice the text stack, there's probably an accessibility consideration going on there. Potentially not the back end, but even that, I could probably plead a case for it. You know, blind developers do exist. They work with the same skill and proficiency as sighted developers. So it's it gets into a weird space when you start making those distinctions of mm-hmm. like, you basically other people in the accessibility needs space. It's like, oh, it's not me, it's them. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that Disability is a continuum, and so, like, you know, we're both wearing glasses. When you start to recontextualize it that way, you start to think real deep thoughts. (laughs) It is very interesting to me as thinking about accessibility in a much more broad way and thinking about things like color contrast. That becomes an interesting one. It's like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And then uh, limited mobility. So folks can have temporary periods of limited mobility. In fact, most of us at some point in our life will probably have some period where our hands don't work. Both of our hands are not working ideally in that moment. So maybe the mouse becomes more difficult to use and keyboard accessibility is suddenly, for a brief period of time in our life, a very important concern. And the phrase you use there of othering and that idea of like, well, there's otherly abled people and then there's the, the majority, the everyone else. Mm-hmm. And trying to shift that and say like, oh, the, a good number of people at some point in their life will experience situations where it would be nice if the web came to meet them where they are. Yeah. It's it's interesting kind of like when you talk about shifting to use a keyboard, like, you know, there's a, there's a really kind of fun thing if you see a very experienced assistive technology user, so like a screen reader, if you see them in action and they're, you know, they're technically proficient and also have been doing this for a while, it's like basically Vim for a GUI, yep. you know, where it's, you know, you're navigating probably faster than with a cursor and a pointer. And that's really kind of cool. So mm-hmm. yeah, I try to, that's another thing that I th- find is helpful is empathy ac- exercises where you actually demonstrate how the technology is being used because it brings it from this abstract kind of thing to the concrete where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, okay, no, there's a reason we do this. And here's a person that is benefiting from it. And yep. not just like, this is considered good practice and good practices, like whatever's in vogue at that moment. And you can just kind of invoke it to make people go away. The very minimal layer that I do actually apply to my day-to-day development is I use Vim as my web browser. Not actually Vim, but I have a plugin. Vimium is particularly the one that I use in Chrome. But as much as humanly possible, I'm using the keyboard as my mechanism to navigate and interact with the document. And it becomes painfully obvious when I am on a site that is structured well from an accessibility standpoint, because if I hit F, that will light up all of the interaction points on the page. So every link, every button, everything that I can basically click on is now target with a little yellow highlight that has some letter combination. Some pages I click F and lights up like a Christmas tree. (laughs) Some pages I hit F and one thing at the top of the page, there's just like one single click target. It's like, but I see a lot of things on this page that I can click. The intersection between accessibility and things behaving in a consistent way is also an interesting one in my mind. Like if I command click on a link and it does not open in a new tab, I am very angry at whoever did that, (laughs) whoever made that choice to make things different because for whatever reason they decided. They built it in JavaScript and it's broken in in this subtle way, but that hurts accessibility. It hurts 
discoverability that like the web is a platform that we're building for. And actually one of the things that I really loved, you started your talk yesterday with, and I don't want to get the quote wrong, but I think it's web apps are websites. Oh yeah. Can you, what was your exact quote there? I think web apps are websites. Cool. All right. I got <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Good short term memory. Uh, go me. I mean, it's a good, it's a soundbiteable quote. But that idea where folks are looking at like, oh, no, I'm building with JavaScript, and this isn't, a, this isn't a document for the web, so I don't need to worry about links or buttons or things, I think is the wrong way to think about it. And I think exactly the way you framed it is web apps are just applications that are built using this same, like, it should still behave in the same way and have the same logical structures. And we should have URLs for things. Man, URLs are such a great idea. Yeah, remember Everybody, hash banks? Oh, hash banks, the sadness, the great <laughs> sadness from back when. But we survived. We got a we got a push state API. One of the things that you and I have actually discussed on this topic is taking some of these accessibility concerns and trying to push them upstream. One of the mechanisms for that being design systems. Mm-hmm. I know that's an area that you've worked in, so I'm interested in your thoughts around design systems and their place, and particularly in the intersection of development and design and how those two focus areas can come together. Yeah, yeah. So I really enjoy design systems when I have the luxury of being able to work on them. I was fortunate enough to be able to kind of halfway institute, halfway resurrect one for a previous client. It's just a lot of fun to kind of take what's already there and shape it into something more systematic. And actually, real quick, can you give a definition of when you use the phrase design systems, what what you mean by that, what you're referencing? Sure. It's basically creating canonical treatments for all of the visual elements on a website that's probably less sexy than other people's definitions, <laughs> but a, a single source of truth that's a living document that evolves as the site does. That makes sense. Most of my experience of late has been in the world of React client-side applications, but then taking the idea of the design system and actually turning it into reusable components, mm-hmm. so at the at the React level. And I really like that intersection, although I think it's still a young world. We're still figuring out the best ways to do that. But have you worked in that mode particularly or something similar to that? Yeah, yeah. Components are kind of part of an overall, in my opinion. Gina, who worked on the Salesforce Lightning design system, which is sort of the go-to example, uh, has this concept of uh, design tokens, which are basically like atomic little bits that you can actually thread out into your entire website. So it's, you know, like your colors, your font choices. And the interesting kind of thing about this is like, you know, tokens can then be threaded into paragraph styles. Paragraph styles are kind of what I would call like a base element, same as like a, you know, inline code tag and those kinds of things. And then those in turn can kind of be, you know, legoed together to build larger kind of components. Typically, at least mentally, I think about a component as a collection of, you know, semantic markup that's all done in the service of doing a thing. So, you know, like, is it a bottom bar at the bottom of your application that's like saving or canceling or like noping out? Noping out? Yeah, just, I, I don't even want to be here. Yep. Just get me out of this flow. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> Abort, retry, fail. Um, and so, like, that's kind of where my head's at mm-hmm. when I approach a design system. You're very fortunate if you get to kind of create one from whole cloth and you can have those conversations. Typically, Mm -hmm. at least in my experience, it's navigating what the client has already kind of set up, figuring out which of those bits are common to all the components and elements on a site and then consolidating them. Yep. It's interesting to me seeing also the implementation of a few of these design systems where it's actually a very difficult challenge to provide the right API to that. Because ideally, well, I'm, I'm saying ideally, actually, this is maybe more of a question for you. Is the interface to these sort of things, like I want a card, and a card has a property for the title and then a property for the body, which is some other HTML construct that fits within it, 
Or would you imagine that actually is possibly a misuse of these technologies? And, and perhaps we already have a language for this, which is CSS. Where do you see that spectrum falling? Because what I've seen is it's very hard to define that API of it's a card and it has these properties that allow everyone to use it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a social solution to a technology problem in my mind where a design system is only as good as the people that understand how to use it. So like providing an API for these things is great. But, you know, the, the kind of the question back to you is like, how are you exposing this API to new developers, to established developers who have their own way of doing things, to... You know, the product team, because like ideally what you want to do is kind of consolidate on this terminology. So you want your project managers saying, I want a card. And everybody understands when I say card, everybody from design to development to product to marketing, you know, all the way up potentially to the CEO, depending on how big the company is, mm-hmm. you know, they all have a shared understanding of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Because once you start to do that, then you can kind of start to have conversations about, well, this card isn't working. So what do we do to fix it? Or should we split it into two separate components? Or, you know, do we create variants? And then how do we corral that? Cards are also problematic because they're little mini websites. (laughs) So Mm. like you get into this whole like content strategy thing where it's like if your website is 12 websites crammed into one website, maybe that's not the best way to go about doing these kinds of things. Interesting. Hot take. Yeah. Because cards are all the rage, but yeah. here we are. Yeah. I do dream of, of essentially that world that you're describing where product is using the same both verbal and visual language to describe. Like, okay, so for this flow, we want people to land on a page and then there'll be a, you know, a normal paragraph and then a couple of cards. Let's just say cards are fine for this moment. And yeah. <laughs> the cards and the cards have a button which allows people to do things and then a modal pops up and a modal means a thing. We should come back to modals because those are interesting. Oh, but, I got lots of thoughts about modals. But then that can come to developers, and developers are able to use this design system as a component set and bring those in. Mm-hmm. What I end up seeing a lot is bespoke CSS in each of the implementation files. Yep. And to me, that means that we haven't, with that particular design system, we haven't gotten to the point where we don't need to do that anymore. But I wonder if that's actually an achievable goal, if we're ever going to get to a place where it's like, nope, the design system fully encapsulates things, and developers will not need to do any style manipulation directly. They have this other component-based API to interact with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the ideal is I can have a napkin sketch and like write the word card and draw yeah. a box, and everybody understands that that's how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. That being said, no plan survives contact with the enemy, so custom styling is inevitable. I've been doing a lot of reading around web components, and I know a lot of single-page applications have their own version of this, but what I've kind of been enjoying is that you encapsulate your styling into these things as much as possible. You know, you have this, basically the shadow DOM barrier that you mm. got to break. And I think that lets you kind of have your cake and eat it too. So I've heard the phrase shadow DOM. I think I read about it once. I actually remember one day we were having a conversation here. It was like an after work thing. And someone said something. I responded with, oh, yeah, the shadow dom. And Chad, our CEO, looked over at me and gave me like a shut up. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, it's a real thing. He's like, it's not a real I was like, no, it's a real thing, yeah. Chad. And then we looked at it and he's like, oh, yeah, OK, that's a thing. But the shadow dom, 
let me try and get my understanding of it and then please correct me. It's a separate CSS. It, it basically breaks the cascade and resets a new global document space where your, your styles are now outside of the cascade of the parent document. Is that right or just wrong? Yeah, that's, I apologize. I should have explained my jargon. It's it's like the uh, Stranger Things, the uh, alternate world where... Oh. So you know, the upside down? You, yeah, the upside down where you, you pierce that barrier mm-hmm. and the rules are a little different. So like when you click a date picker input and Chrome pops up a little calendar, mm-hmm. that's the shadow DOM. Gotcha. It's, it's a reserve space that the browsers historically have used to uh, yeah, isolate I guess their have. styling. Yeah. And then much like Stranger Things, we figured out how to pierce into this <laughs> other world and unleash all these horrors. It's interesting to me because when I think about it, that doesn't sound like the ideal that I want to live in where the date picker that we now put on our site does not match the visual like spacing and typography and color schemes. And we use this particular subdued gray for de-emphasized text elsewhere on the page. But in the date picker, it's Helvetica and you can't change that. And it's five pixel padding around it. Like, am I understanding correctly that that's what the web components in Shadow DOM would do? And if so, is that a good thing or a, I think it's, I'm scared of that. So what do you think? Yeah, yes and no. I like the cascade reset and the isolation that you get. Mm-hmm. So I can say these things are red, these things are green, you know, we're using a different font size and it doesn't do what everybody hates CSS doing, which is bleed out in completely unanticipated ways. Mm-hmm. The downside to that is the cascade is very powerful and it is not an anti-pattern. It's, you know, hot takes left and right. I mean... It's a recently hot take, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a isomorphic state-driven language, and that's really cool. That was a fun sentence. Yeah, jargon. But yeah, no, I, I must be like probably a bad designer because I think that default pop-up is great because hmm. when you try to recreate these kinds of things, you got to get over your ego where what good is your branding if I can't operate it with a keyboard if I can't operate it with non-ideal input. Yep. It's interesting that you say that because I do agree completely with that. And like coming back to modal, which we just talked about, every client I've ever worked with has had their own bespoke implementation of modal. And finally, the browsers are introducing a element and an API. I'm not sure how, but it's the dialogue component. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so now we actually have a way semantically to say we want like, you know, that thing that we've always called a modal. It's a dialogue and it's that. But if everyone would be fine with using that, and with using the native date pickers and with using prompts and confirm, which are, again, all built into the platform, they are familiar to users because they know that. It's much easier from a development standpoint to do that. It provides a more consistent user experience. It has accessibility built in. It won't necessarily match your branding entirely, but I'm intrigued by your position as a designer that like maybe that is fine and even good. Yeah, I kind of have the thought that like if your brand relies entirely on like pixel perfect visual design that it's not a strong brand Um, it's something you communicate with your typographic choices with your copywriting with the experience surrounding using the product or the service you know i i don't care about your bespoke kind of homegrown typeface that you spent a month and a half on and you wrote 200 blog posts about how great it is if i literally can't push the buy button to buy the thing that you're trying to sell me so that being said, like they are beautiful. Like as a designer, I do appreciate the work that goes into them. Like they are fascinating. I like typography a lot, but what's it all in the service of? That's the big question. Yeah. Moving back to something you were talking about earlier with the cascade and the much maligned cascade, but also potentially very powerful. 
one of the patterns that I've seen developing on these client-side apps is the idea of CSS in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And there's now 20 different implementations of this. There's emotion, style components, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the core aspects of most of them is the idea of just not letting the cascade happen at all. Every single uh, selector is scoped uniquely to itself. All styles are fully encapsulated. Uh, and it does allow for component-centric design, which I do like, but it does feel like we're going against the fundamental building block of styling on the web. So Yeah, I have very complicated feelings about this hmm. because... That's a legitimate tagline for this podcast, <laughs> by the way. I have very complicated feelings, and then we go. Yeah, so pros, encapsulating your styles is great, Developer ergonomics is potentially great, but what's it in the service of? Being where the industry is is great if you want to continue to be employed. Cons are, you know, especially like React Native, I just learned, doesn't have certain CSS properties in it. And that's kind of terrifying. You're you're kind of going off the ranch and like basically limiting what your designers and developers can accomplish because you and your arrogance kind of decide that there are a certain way things should be and you're going against an established standard which effectively works for the entire rest of the internet. It moves the technical barrier higher, so I need to know X amount more to be able to participate in the industry. The industry already is full of complexity, so Mm. is this a necessary thing? There's a degree of gender issues at play as well. Hayden Pickering just wrote a really good article about it, uh, about gatekeeping, where we regard styling oftentimes as women's work, whereas hmm. like, if you have somebody that knows what they're doing in CSS, they can accomplish a whole lot you know, with a modicum of JavaScript, if any. You, know, you can solve fizzbuzz in CSS. Like, <laughs> Is CSS turn complete? It is. I guess if it can, yeah. Yeah. And like, that's the kind of thing where it's like, the more you artificially limit yourself, you know, the, the more you start to limit what you can ultimately accomplish. And then again, that hooks back into accessibility. I'm going to go back to React Native again because it's, I guess, the punching bag of this, <laughs> of this podcast where it's recently there was another article about it's horrible for accessibility because hmm. it was not presented as a concern when the language was authored. And therefore, you That's have to interesting. bolt it back on. I'm surprised by that because my understanding is that iOS at least does an excellent job as a platform around accessibility. And then my additional understanding is that React Native is producing native views, native web views, and things like that. Or not web views, but native buttons and views and et cetera, et cetera. So I would have hoped that you get accessibility out of that, but apparently no, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. Didn't realize that that was part of the situation. I think it was a genius idea on Apple's part to hook basically voiceover into views. So it's basically like you're not invoking an accessibility API. You're invoking the API that is used to draw the layout. Mm -hmm. And like all you got to do there is just name your things nicely, which again is good user experience. So Then something in the React Native translation layer is breaking that, which is unfortunate. It's your hit your F button where nothing lights up. Mm, Sad times. Well, interestingly then, related to that, CSS and JS is something that I've reached for recently in an attempt to provide that encapsulated styles component-based thing in React-based systems. But my finding is that it is difficult to do and it ends up in perhaps an uncanny valley. So the thing that I've started to look at, and I've admittedly not even really explored it, I've just started to like, it's entered my field of view is functional CSS. So I was wondering if you could chat a little bit about that, your thoughts on it, and maybe give the high level of what functional CSS is as well. So my understanding of functional CSS is kind of 
it's based off of Nicole Sullivan's you know object-oriented CSS, where it's single responsibility classes that are effectively immutable, except when they're not because the cascade. But um, oh, that cascade! Rolling your eyes. <laughs> But basically, so you break things down into these kind of like design token level things where you've abstracted away, you know, you don't have distance 15 pixels. You have distance two out of a set, which is built from a system, potentially like a modular scale. And I like using it personally, which kind of ties into a bigger picture concern, which is you're not always going to have a CSS expert and you're not always going to have them available 100% of the time for the things Mm -hmm. that you're working on. But what they can do is create a system like this and then socialize it and educate it where you can kind of build your components up from these modular little pieces, you know, bit by bit. And then it gets very, very JavaScript friendly when you can toggle individual classes without having to completely reinvent an entire component's worth of CSS. It makes for flatter specificity. It makes for more efficient style sheet, like download size, very friendly for like gzip compression and all that good stuff. And perhaps my favorite thing that it does is emphasizes not getting you into a position where you are grabbing a class that gets you 90% of the way there, but it's completely not you know relevant to the thing that you're building, but it's good enough so you slap it in. And that leads into that whole, you change something in CSS and mm-hmm. something completely on the other side of the site. You know, what's the joke? It's like CSS walks into a bar and a bar stool and another bar falls over. <laughs> like you, you avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a different way to work around or work through the cascade because in this case, rather than truly trying to get away from it, there are aspects of functional CSS that I think leverage it. Whereas like the CSS and JS stuff is like, nope, this little thing has its own essentially namespace of style things. It was interesting to me when I first saw functional CSS because it looked truly heretical. Uh, it still does, but maybe in an okay way. In the same way that like React, where the JavaScript's mixed in with the template and the everything's kind of together, it's like, no, that's can't do that. And I was like, oh, well, actually, I don't know, maybe it's fine. With functional CSS, rather than having semantic class names, like it's a UL with a class project list and then an LI within that that is a to-do, mm-hmm. you would have UL class and then... P3 for the third padding structure and BG white or something like that to say background white. And it's these very formatting specific class names. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah. I hope I'm not over constraining the world, but it, it does seem to then like we're now breaking that rule of the separation of your markup says what things are and your, your style sheet says how they should be styled. But we've historically struggled with that, it seems. And this is another attempt at, well, what if we were to try it this way? Yeah, I mean, the the downsides to your point are like the terseness or the other angle of it is like the verbosity. I actually like to spell out the BG into background. Mm-hmm. You know, we have autocomplete. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. And like you said, gzip will just chomp that up. Yeah, but I like human-friendly things, so I don't see like this scattering of acronyms mm-hmm. that I'm like, I need an adult. I don't know how to read this. <laughs> I guess like the perfect's the enemy of the good, mm-hmm. which is like the perfect being like truly semantic class names and things like that. Maybe that ideal was problematic in the face of the cascade and all the other complexities that we have. Yeah, and meeting developers where they are. Yeah. Again, when I used this CSS approach for this previous client, you know, they had their aha moment where I was like, "Oh, you know, just use color blue, and it makes it blue." <laughs> I have yet to try it, but I am really intrigued by what the developer experience would be like of, I need to style this thing. 
That doesn't mean bringing in any other complicated things. It just means applying a couple very logical class names. And it's, you're constraining the entire language of CSS down to this simpler platform-specific set of, okay, this is what we've chosen for ourselves. We don't have arbitrary pixel-based padding. We have five different paddings, four. I don't know what a good number is. Maybe five's crazy, but <laughs> maybe five's a bad idea. Heresy. But, but you have a specific number, and it's been decided, and it's that idea of purposeful design considerations and corralling of CSS into then a subset that that is what gets handed to developers to then implement and I'm intrigued. I want to. I kind of want to play with that world. That yeah, sounds we should, like a, we should spend a Friday. We should spend a Friday, and and then I think you can even layer on top of that still the componentization sort of thing in a React type framework, where you can still have a card, which is now a semantic. Th- well, let's not do card because we don't like that one. Let's say a button. <laughs> we can have. Well, no, buttons are already an element. Not that. Hold on. I'm gonna find one. What's a good example of like a component that we would have in a design system at that level? How about a carousel? Carousel. Oh, wow, that's a fancy one. Yeah, a lot of complexity. Carousel can then encapsulate those things and have the sort of JavaScript interface to a bunch of styling concerns. So we can introduce that abstraction. And then when we need to do any sort of styling extensions, we have this platform-specific language of the functional class names. And yeah, I want to try that. Yeah. I also don't think that you're abandoning CSS. I mean, HTML provides structure, JavaScript provides interaction, CSS describes layout. You know, you're, you're still doing that. You're mm-hmm. just kind of over-declaring more than like what we traditionally think of. And, you know, like other strategies like BEM are just, they exist in the service of trying to corral things mm-hmm. in a way that everybody can kind of understand. So I think it's like thematically in keeping with what CSS is trying to accomplish. Despite functional CSS looking like heresy when I first looked at it, it immediately made sense, like instantly. (laughs) I was like, okay, well, that seems like a weird way to go about it, but I do understand it instantly upon looking at it, and I think I would know how to use it, so that's cool. I'll be honest, I've used BAM on a few projects and I still don't know how to do it. Yeah. I still don't know, is that a block or is that an element? How do we define that? And And that's kind of, yeah, I think you nailed it where it's like, the problem is, is you're still, you have that ambiguity in the human interpretation layer where BEM is only as good as the person authoring it. And mm-hmm. then you scaffold that out to a team. And that's a problem because, yep. you know, ask 10 people to describe this one thing, you'll get 10 different answers. And hmm. I think when I've talked to you about, uh, to get more specific about the functional CSS stuff and give folks a pointer if they're interested in it, you've built your own functional CSS systems, I guess is the best way to describe it in the past, but that ends up being a style sheet that you've authored that has these class names and their associated definitions. But there are a couple of existing frameworks and or just style sheets that you can use. So Tachyons, mm-hmm. Tailwind, mm-hmm. any others that Those are worth? Those are the two that comes to mind. I think they're kind of settling at the top of the ecosystem. I can definitely follow up on show notes or something with, yeah. with a more comprehensive list. They're actually, if you have the time and the inclination, they're a lot of fun to write. And this actually ties into another thing about like putting developer work where you want it to be, where I really like SAS, which is the uh, CSS preprocessing language. It's a lot of fun. It has a lot of power. And I use it to build functional CSS mm-hmm. libraries. And that's cool because it lets me be dry or anti-dry, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also... Again, you know, you want to make sure that your style sheet is lean and mean and efficient. And the more work we can take away from somebody that just really doesn't care about styling stuff, the more we're preventing, like, duplicating mix-ins, making mix-ins that are unnecessarily verbose, that vomit out way more styles than they should. 
you know, you're, you're treating the language as this kind of controlled thing where if you're going to be authoring higher level logic, it's doing so with intention. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of have architectural decisions about it as opposed to like, I wrote a mix in that has a loop in it and suddenly our CSS size is doubled. <laughs> like, and that gets committed because no one's paying attention. And- yeah. This is an area that I have yet to feel like I've settled on any great solution with CSS and JS being my most recent exploration of it. But I'm very intrigued by the functional CSS. It is firmly for me and the I've like, that seems nifty. I should try that. I'm glad to have someone on this podcast who actually has done it. So you can speak to it in that sense. But yeah, stay tuned in this space to hear more if I ever try it out and how, <laughs> how I experience. But again, like my guess is it will go well because it is immediately intuitive. It seems like it handles both the default case of well, we can now encapsulate a carousel. That's a thing. But if I need to make a carousel that's blue instead of red, I also know how to do that because we have a very logical extension language for that. So Yeah. I also think like it's not an all or nothing affair. Complexity is inevitable and you might need to write some scope styles. You might need to mm-hmm. like, you know, basically carve out a little area in your CSS to get that carousel over the top. There's always the 11th hour marketing request mm-hmm. that just completely destroys the little world you've made for yourself. So like making sure you're, you have strategies to accommodate that. Harry Roberts has the concept of shame CSS. Have you heard of that? I have not. It's a little partial that is tacked onto the bottom of your style sheet. And every time you make these little edits... You basically throw them into shame because you haven't had the space to basically do it the right way. But you also document what you're doing and why and what it's supposed to affect. Uh, so that way you have a historical record. If you have time to tackle your tech debt, you know, there's a little laundry list of things you can work on. Preemptively labeling it as shameful tech debt that I'm introducing into the code base now due to deadlines or things that are out of time. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially in CSS, like if you, you just sort of let people run free, you'll get all this scattered everywhere. And it's mm-hmm. such a pain in the butt to hunt down. Well, I, I'm definitely intrigued by the idea of finding better ways to have that interface, the design developer handoff, and finding that right optimization point of what should be the overlap, what should be the artifact that's exchanged, what should be the then language of implementation. All of that is really interesting. Actually, looping back to the accessibility discussion that we had, One of the things that I would love to see is more of this handled as a first-class concern in things like frameworks or even languages, ideally. But the one thing that I've seen that actually sort of caught my attention is a company called Reach.Tech, which I think is their website name, which, sure, we have fancy TLDs now. (laughs) But it's Ryan Florence, who's a developer in the React world, who has since sort of ventured out and is basically giving workshops to fund his development of this foundational, accessible, first foundation for a design system, as far as I can tell. And I don't know if you've taken a look at it, but it did seem interesting to me from that standpoint. Yeah, yeah. You actually made me aware of it, and it was really cool. But it's... I haven't looked at it anything beyond that, so I'm wondering if you have. So you can tell me. Yeah, I, I poked around a little bit. I'm very excited. You know, if, if I came up to you and said, hello, fellow developer, what if I told you you don't have to worry about accessibility if you just use this library? You know, it'll do all the things that you're used to doing, only it has a little extra markup that you don't have to think about. You know, what would your reaction be? Well, because I'm on a podcast and I'm answering in front of many people, my (laughs) answer would be, that sounds nice. I mean, I'll still try and think about accessibility as much as possible, but it's great that it's ideally that idea of it's handled for me. That does sound fantastic, but it still should be a concern. Yeah. But taking as much of the obvious, the we always should be doing this no matter what's, and pushing those into a framework so that that's the foundation from which I build. 
like don't start broken, I guess is the way I would describe it. And so (laughs) love, love that idea. Yeah. The other, and this is the cynical side of me, I haven't put it through its paces Mm -hmm. and that is not a disservice to the work that he's doing. Mm -hmm. That's just more my default approach nowadays. I've seen far too many, oh, it's accessible libraries that I then fire up my little Windows VM and I run it through JAWS, which is the go-to screen reader of choice. Um, If you are actually serious about this, uh, voiceover is great, but it is not a full-fledged screen reader. It has severe limitations. And it is very obvious to me that the developer didn't reach as deep as he needed to or they needed to where... You know, they just use what was available. To be clear, that was uh, an accidental pun where you used the word reach, and you're talking about <laughs> a hypothetical other libraries, but not necessarily reach. <laughs> yeah. Because you've yet to. No, that's... Just want to clarify, we're not yet yeah, saying yeah. that. You incepted yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm always skeptical, but when something does work, and it works cross-browser, cross-operating system, cross-screen reader... Oh my God, I love it. Mm -hmm. And I sing its praises to high heaven because like that's the hard work. Yeah. And you know what's interesting is whenever I see an application like that, it's also typically a good application. Like accessibility and security and things like that, they don't go in contrast to good design or building good applications. They're almost always just you're doing the right things. You're not going against the grain. You're not building outside the patterns, but you're leaning into the components of the web. You're leaning into HTML and semantic markup and things like that. And that makes it better for accessibility, but it also makes it better for everyone. A more accessible website is more accessible for everyone, not just the people who need that. I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit Aww. here. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the dream. That's the dream. I've been kind of, it's interesting you say like working with like cross-cutting concerns. I've been kind of experimenting with teaching people that you can tie appearance to state. So like why over-declare something when, like, CSS gives you um, attribute selectors. Mm -hmm. So if you've scoped your stuff nicely, like, you can put a disabled attribute on it. You can put a hidden attribute on it. And these are things that hook into the browser's APIs far deeper than a CSS class of, like, is disabled, which will only visually update it. And it's one of those things where you can kind of have your cake and eat it, too, because your selectors are shorter, they're more controlled, they're built to a common standard. Yeah, using attributes to uh, do this stuff is definitely, because it speaks to multiple different things, it speaks to the browser to say, actually disable the functionality, but then it gives you a styling hook at the same time, and you get that all in one. That's great. That's yeah. just, we, don't, that's, we don't want to type more than we have to. Yeah, yeah I love being lazy. And that's the dream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's one weird trick. Awesome, Eric. Well, I think that'll probably cover enough topics for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a blast. This has been an absolute pleasure. Where can folks uh, find more of your stuff on the internet? Sure. I keep a list of my writing and other nonsense at my personal website, which is ericwbailey.design. Again, those trendy TLDs. (laughs) (laughs) We'll put that in the show notes as well. (laughs) And then I'm on Twitter at ericwbailey. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Eric. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, 
Let's build something great together.